Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, today with a message titled, The Final Judgment. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, it's the last section of this chapter. It very closely resembles Revelation 20, 11 to 15. And so let me read the passage from Revelation and then we'll begin with our passage from the teaching of Jesus. So Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, that passage then gives rise to the next event in God's timetable. Revelation 21 begins with the words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then, a few verses later, we hear the words from the throne, Behold, I am making all things new. But the judgment that precedes the renewal of all things reminds us that heaven is not a universal reality for the human race. The one who sits on the throne is the one who judges all of mankind, the one who opens the books, recording the thoughts and deeds and attitudes of every human being. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. All is exposed and everyone is found wanting. No human being is passing the test of judgment. But then according to Revelation, there's one more book. And this final book is not the book of deeds. It's the book of life, the book of eternal life. To have one's name written there is our only hope. The book consists of those who have been made clean by the Lamb, who've surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, and who are cleansed by his blood. Now then, Matthew 25 is very much like Revelation, but it has some differences, and we're going to pay attention to those. So we're going to start with Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It does no good here to argue that this event in Matthew 25, because it comes, you know, right after the second coming of Jesus, must then happen immediately after that. We're given no timeline between the second coming of Jesus and the throne upon which he sits. But this scene that, you know, opens up to us here, that the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne, really does correspond with John's vision in Revelation. And furthermore, in Matthew, as Jesus is describing the events at the end of the age, notice that he calls himself the Son of Man. He's referring to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. That's the passage of the end of the age, when the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, you know, who in the framework of the New Testament, we understand to be God the Father. And then the Son of Man is given an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. We must understand Jesus' words describing himself as the Son of Man who's now seated upon the throne, that he always has this in his destiny. He comes and sits on his glorious throne, the one that rules all things now and forevermore. All divine authority is given to him. And for that reason, all humanity, both the nations and cultures of this world, as well as each individual, is judged by him. 
Verses 32 and 33, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, those who have been following this series through, you're going to notice that I said that Jesus told five parables in chapter 24 and 25. And if you're keeping track, this then is the fifth and last parable. But of course, it is a parable and it's not a parable. I mean, the events that Jesus is describing literally happen. But in order to describe the events, he uses parable-like characters, that of a shepherd separating out the sheep from the goats. You know, during the day, shepherds allow sheep and goats to graze together. But when evening approaches, sheep like the cool air and goats need to be herded together for warmth. And so the shepherd separates them when the day ends. And that's a fitting image here. The day of the age of sin and rebellion and going one's own way has now come to an end. Night has fallen on the kingdoms of men. The day is now over. The time is at hand to separate all humanity into two groups. For in the future, the sheep and the goats will no longer dwell together. And I think this image requires some time to absorb. You know, in the present hour, the righteous and the unrighteous live together. And at times, the righteous suffer because of it. You know, in Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus said that his followers would be delivered up to tribulation and death, and they would be hated by all nations. You know, that image leaves one with the view that the followers of Jesus will have nowhere to flee. The sheep and the goats will dwell together for a very long day, but now they're going to be separated. Here again, we get a vision of the book of life that's opened, indicating where each one's place is, to the right or to the left. I don't know how long this separating takes. You know, the image that we've just read is so vast that I must confess, I struggle to take it in. I mean, how vast is the number of human beings that stand before the throne? I mean, since all the nations are gathered, we have to assume that it's in keeping with the image in Revelation, where death and Hades give up the dead that are in them. You know, in short, the group that's gathered will consist of every human being that's ever lived. And I have to assume that the dead that are raised are the unrighteous dead who are now a part of what's called the second resurrection. Human beings raised bodily. There they stand, everyone taking up space. A crowd stretches on and on. I struggle to take that scene in. And then comes the gathering of one group on the right hand of the king and the other on the left. You know, in Bible times, the right hand is the place of authority and honor. And the image is that Christ is placing his people on his right in the place of honor. Let's continue to read verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I wonder if you notice this subtle change of wording. You know, back in verse 31, the one seated on the throne, he's called the son of man. But here in verse 34, he's called the king. Now, of course, that's not surprising because in Daniel's vision, the son of man receives an eternal kingdom. But I think Jesus has more in mind here. He's telling his disciples, don't you know who I am? David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was told that his kingdom would never end and that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and from there would rule all nations forever and ever. And Psalm chapter 2, reflecting on that reality, says, kiss the son, lest he destroy you and you perish in the way. See, I see here in Matthew 25, 34, an important point we must not miss. Jesus was telling his disciples that, yes, very shortly, he would be crucified, but he's also telling them, don't forget who I am. 
I am humanity's rightful ruler. I'm the one who rules both the sheep and the goats. For when I speak, they all listen. Listen now to the words of the king. Come you who are blessed by my father. That is, the father has chosen to be gracious to the ones on his right. To be blessed in Matthew chapter 5, well, that's the Greek word makarioi. That is, how favored they are. That's not actually the word that Jesus uses here. The word here is actually a different Greek word. It means specifically that God has, as an act of free grace, bestowed favor on the group on the right. The idea is they haven't earned it. God has simply given it to them. But how does he bless them? He says, inherit the kingdom. Revelation 22 verse 5 says that these will reign with Christ forever and ever. That is, these are called on behalf of Christ to rule over all the works of God's hands. I mean, you think back in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, they were told to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over all the earth. But now at this time, at the end of the age, the saints on the right are told they will rule over everything, and that means the universe. More than lords of the earth, we are lords of the universe, and that's hard to take in. If, if the image of all who have ever lived standing before the throne is hard to take in, this image of ruling over everything, that's also hard to take in, but that's the future of the saints. So let's continue to read. And what we read next is going to surprise us. For the king will explain something to those on his right. Listen carefully, verses 35 to 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And the first most obvious question is here, what's going on? See, it's possible to read this passage as if feeding and clothing the poor earns you a spot in heaven. Is that so? Hi, Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On behalf of the entire ministry team, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to this station and supporting the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with your prayers and financial gifts. May we together take pleasure in the festivities of the season, but also keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds the promise of God kept through the arrival of His Son. Christmas reminds us that God keeps His promises his son would make the ultimate sacrifice that we might be forgiven and enter into a renewed relationship with our Father in heaven. If you feel lost, lonely, or troubled this season, remember he came that you might have life. The child of God is never alone. Merry Christmas, and may this message of the season fill you with the joy and hope that can only come from a promise kept. The Bible has a great deal to say about our response to the poor. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, For they will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor of the land. See, the Old Testament also makes it very clear that those who had means were required 
to look after the poor. And that meant that the poor were allowed to glean from the fields of wealthy landowners. The year of Jubilee was put into place so that all debts would be forgiven and that land that was lost would be restored. In other words, the poor were given a pathway to make the way forward and again restore what was lost. See, the First Testament prophets were very straightforward about the poor. Ezekiel 22, verse 29, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. We find the same pattern in the New Testament. When Paul began his ministry, he met with the apostles in Jerusalem and they affirmed the gospel he was preaching and urged him to carry on in what he was doing. And then in Galatians 2, verse 10, he adds, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All that to say, no child of God can remain indifferent to the cries of the poor. And I say that and insist that we've got to take that to heart. However, in this passage in Matthew 25, you know, Jesus can be interpreted to be saying that the reason why the ones whom he has placed on the right hand of his throne are there and inherit the kingdom is, verse 35, because I was hungry. And and that's troublesome. Is salvation by grace alone, or do we care for the poor and earn our salvation? I hope you see that requires a close study into what Jesus is actually saying. Notice after Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger with no home and you welcomed me. I had nothing with which to clothe myself and you made sure I had clothes to wear. I was sick and I didn't remain sick by myself. You came to visit me so I wouldn't be alone. And when I was thrown into prison, I didn't languish in prison by myself. You were there. And then the righteous are surprised. You know, when did we do that, they ask. Indeed, they repeat the words all over again. When did we feed you? When did we give you a drink? When did we clothe you? When did we come to the hospital or to the prison? We don't remember doing that. Now notice his answer, it's found in verse 40 as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine. So the real question we need to answer is, who are the brothers of Jesus? And just so we don't get hung up on the word brothers, yeah, it does include sisters as well. You know, some people simply conclude that the brothers of Jesus means everyone in the human race. But let's listen to what Jesus actually taught about that. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Ah. So the brothers of Jesus are his followers, his people. Now, now, please don't write me letters telling me of our duty to the poor. I know that. Indeed, I've acknowledged that. It is a command of God. But we need to ask what Jesus meant in this specific passage. You see, in this passage, Jesus points out how you treated my brothers and sisters in the gospel, my followers, how you treated them, you treated me. Remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What had Saul been doing? He'd been persecuting the church. And furthermore, 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You're that temple. Short commentary on that. If you do harm to the church, God's going to do harm to you. 
All right. That's what Jesus meant by his brothers. When believers were put into prison, you visited them. When believers were destitute, you took care of their needs. When believers were sick, they were not left to languish by themselves. For anyone who truly knows Christ will love the brothers and sisters they have in Christ. See, it's not possible to be a follower of Jesus and not passionately love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that then is the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching. It's not that we earn our salvation by visiting those in prison. It's this. Having been blessed by God and made into children of God, we're now placed into relationship with fellow believers in Christ. We're in solidarity with others. We love one another. We're not ashamed of our fellow brother or sister's chains. We're not indifferent to the destitute sister that we have. We love as Christ loved us. Again, We don't earn our salvation by doing that. Rather, we showcase that we're truly saved when we love the brothers. Think about it. Paul's in prison in Rome. He writes to Timothy. Listen to what he says, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of me, Paul tells Timothy. Come and visit me, even though I know it's dangerous to do so. I remember a number of years ago, I was ministering in a part of the world where Christians were being thrown into prison. One brother told me a story. He said a new believer had just been put into prison. His wife and children had been moved, and he didn't know where they were. He was issued a government divorce certificate divorcing him from his wife. His business had been confiscated. The man who told me this story said, I went to visit this brother in prison. He said the man had been singing praises to Christ in his cell. The man who told me this said, I knelt before this imprisoned brother. I took his hand in my hands and I kissed it. And I said, I want to kiss the hand that slapped Satan in the face. (laughs) That's one thing I, I forgot to mention about this story. While this Christian man was in prison, he was being told no one in the Christian community cares about you. You're forgotten. It was not true. Listen again to our text, Matthew 25, 41 to 45. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. Now we see in this text, the words are repeated, but this time in the negative. I was hungry, said Jesus, and you took no account of it. You were unconcerned about my needs and about my wretched condition. I was thirsty for just a glass of water, and even that was too much for you. Again, take this passage to heart. The nations of the world will be judged by the way they treated the church and the followers of Jesus, and there's no getting away from that conclusion. Think, for instance, of those world leaders that harm the followers of Jesus. How horrible it would be for them on the day of judgment. In Uganda, wicked Idi Amin buried Christian leaders in the earth, only their heads were exposed, and then ordered his tank drivers to drive over them. In Romania, the wicked Ceausescu ordered his troops into the square of Timisoara and ordered them to kill the Christians who were gathered there. 
The one who sits in heaven will never forget such an outrage. He will judge those who turned against his people. Now to the last part of this chapter, Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look, we live in a day when it's very popular to depict hell as a time of limited duration. Now, if that's what you believe, listen to the voice of Jesus. He uses the very same word to describe punishment as he does to describe life. It's the word eternal. It's eternal punishment or eternal life. Listen, if hell is of a limited duration, then according to the words of Jesus, then heaven must be as well. Look, you can't have it both ways. You can't say life is eternal, but judgment is not. He uses the same word to describe both. And that brings us to the end of this section in Matthew, from the triumphal entry to the teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It highlights the work of the cross. Christ came to give his life for the sins of the world. You know, his teaching reminds us of what's at stake. Heaven, eternal heaven, or hell, eternal hell. Never think that the events of Calvary are merely a set of events for the church or for Christians. What happened at the cross is about every man, woman, boy, or girl. All are impacted, for all are brought to the place of a fork in the road. Which do you want? Eternal life or eternal damnation? Choose well, choose life, choose Christ, and live. Thanks, John, for your message and for the series. Let me ask you one last question. What do we need to consider when Jesus says, as you have done it unto the least of these, my brothers? Yeah, let me again repeat. It's not that Christ is not concerned with believers and their commitment to the poor of the earth. I I wanna be very clear about that. Uh, However, I think this specific parable is about you know, how we treat the people of God. You can't be a solitary Christian and care nothing about other believers. You commit yourself to others. You visit them in time of trouble. You do things for them because they are believers, and that showcases that you are one of God's people. You love the brothers. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything He has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on His behalf. Now we look forward to all He has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for His glory. Now, each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.